January 7th, Belmont, California. January 25th, Mobile, Alabama. January 30th, Lithuania, Georgia. January 31st, Memphis, Tennessee. January 31st, Humble, Texas. February 8th, Baltimore, Maryland. February 12th, Kansas City, Missouri. February 17th, Centennial, Colorado. February 26th, Montgomery, Alabama. March 7th, Gambling, Louisiana. March 27th, Lexington, Mississippi. April 1st, Prescott, Arkansas. April 30th, Charlotte, North Carolina. May 4th, Eugene, Oregon. May 7th, Highlands Ranch, Colorado. May 7th, Savannah, Georgia. May 17th, Jacksonville, Florida. June 6th, Chicago, Illinois. June 21st, Flint, Michigan. July 1st, Bronx, New York. July 2nd, Anchorage, Alaska. And July 11th, Hartford, Connecticut. That's 2019. That is how many shootings there have been in 2019. Those are the dates and the schools. That's what's going on in our kids' schools, in the universities, in the high schools, in the elementary schools. That's what we're dealing with. And there's not a parent listening to this podcast who isn't completely and totally freaked out by that. As a parent whose daughter just left college, I'm, I have a level of relief. My son lives in Barcelona. He was there during the terrorist attack. At what point as parents do we get to relax? And I submit to you never because we are seeing a whole nother phenomenon. And I'm, for lack of a better term, and maybe I'm actually using the clinical term, we are seeing shooter survivor suicide. What is this? How did we end up here? How did we get to this place where we have to do shows about surviving a shooting and then having to worry about suicide? I have been studying martial arts since I was in seventh grade. And you know what I teach kids now? I teach them how many math books, how many school books they should stack in their backpack and then put their backpack on the front of their body so that they have a better chance of surviving a high-powered rifle. You know how many books that takes? Have you seen the video where a manager comes in to talk to all the employees about workplace shootings and shooting prep? And they said, we're gonna bring in a guest speaker. And a nine-year-old girl walks in and sings them the song that the teacher taught him about how to stay low and not cry because that might tell the shooter where you are. How the hell did we end up here? I have a guest today who can hopefully not just shed some light on this phenomenon, but can also help parents help their kids deal with this concept. My name is Aaron Huey. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. My guest today is Dr. Theodore Bender. Dr. Bender, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Okay. So I was working with, uh, well, you know what, let me back off. Let's, let's just start with, uh, with the ETR conversation. Um, how did you end up where you are and what is the, what do you have under your belt that, that, uh, is putting you in a place to talk and help and, and, uh, and teach people and parents? Yeah. So, um, I spent the, um, the, first part of my career uh, as a suicide researcher. Um, so I was working with uh, my research laboratory at Florida State University and my mentor, uh, Dr. Thomas Joyner, who is one of the world's leading experts in suicidality. 
And through my work at Florida State University, I became heavily involved in what's now known as the Military Suicide Research Consortium. So I, I worked on putting the, together that very large grant. Uh, and then I ended up working as a postdoc for the consortium um, through the Department of Defense and the Army uh, grant funding to study military suicides and specifically warrior resiliency. And we were looking for ways to identify suicide risk, how to treat soldiers and veterans who were at risk for suicidality. And one of the, one of the trickier parts about suicide risk and, and detecting suicide risk and predicting future suicide risk is that it's, it's very difficult. Um, the, even some of the best measures on the planet run by the most experienced doctors, a lot of times they get barely better than a 50% kind of prediction rate. Um, so we were looking for ways to kind of, you know, not only prevent suicide, but ask about suicide, determine suicide risk without just using the same old, you know, are you, are you at risk for self-harm type questions? Because lots of people will just say no when they really are severely at risk. So through that work, um, I, I went on my residency at Brown University uh, and I worked, I was working with people with suicide risk, also addiction. And I worked with some veterans up there as well. And I, I was noticing that most of the veterans that I was working with also had severe addiction use disorders, substance use disorders. So through my work in that realm, uh, my career kind of took a turn into the addiction space. Uh, and I've been doing that ever since. All right, let's 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 jump into some of the topics just right away, because this, this suicide piece is such a, it's such a, I mean, I hear from parents constantly that this is like I maybe there was one kid in high school, maybe there was one kid who did it, and 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 I'm a Gen Xer, one kid in my high school, and now it feels like if a child does it, or or better yet, I should say, when a child does it, there's a copycat phenomenon. Can you speak to that real quick? Because I know that that's a big question for parents is this suicide copycat that, that suddenly that grade, that school can develop a culture of suicide as an option. Yes. And I'm very glad you asked that question because there's a lot of myth surrounding this phenomenon and a lot of people are misunderstand the, this concept. So what we do see sometimes is what you're pointing out is a clustering phenomenon. Whereas you have a school and one person or one teenager dies by suicide, and then very shortly after, there's a second or a third. And the mistake here is to believe that it's a contagion, almost like a virus. Like you get the flu, you shake someone's hand, someone else gets the flu. There's where the myth and the misunderstanding lies. It's not a contagion. You can't catch suicidality. What does happen, though, is we see clustering effects. So the biggest difference there and the most important thing to remember is that sometimes they do cluster, but it's only in people that were highly su high, high suicide risk in the first place, meaning that one person may die by suicide and then other people who are also highly at risk for suicide, who have been thinking about dying by suicide, who have been gathering materials or making a plan, that just might be kind of what puts them over the edge to gain the courage to go forward with their plan. So one of the biggest myths surrounding suicidality is this exact concept. And it's very important for listeners to understand the difference. So let's talk about some of the high risk factors that would make someone um, 
become part of a cluster should a, a child at the school commit suicide. Um, you're, you're saying that these other people are already at risk. So let's talk about, in fact, let's, let's go all the way back to basics. What does at risk for suicide mean? How does a parent interpret that statement so that they can begin to really clarify if their child is at risk for suicide? Yeah. And a lot of times, you know, again, with movies and the myths that we believe surrounding suicidality, we, we always assume or a lot of people will assume that there are blatant outward signs of this. And I've worked with many suicide decedents or the people that are kind of left behind after someone dies by suicide. And the questions are always, you know, basically, what did I miss? How did I not see this coming? This is my fault. I could have prevented it. But a lot of people don't show a lot of outward signs and symptoms. You know, if we were just looking at the movies, we expect a, a suicide note. We expect them to be giving away all of their belongings ahead of time. And sometimes that does happen. But a lot of times you, you may be in the room with someone who's suffering from severe, you know, major depressive disorder and not even know it. They can internalize, they can hide their symptoms. And a lot of people that die by suicide don't exhibit a lot of outward symptoms. So that's where it becomes really important to be talking about this. You know, uh, in, the, in the case of school shootings, you know, we see a lot of, we see people dying by suicide after the fact, the survivors. And if we can get into the mode of not being afraid rather than being proactive, and we start to ask, you know, our kids, hey, you know, have you been having any thoughts of harming yourself? You know, do you have, you know, if, if the answer is yes to that, you know, have you had any plans? Have you been gathering materials? Have you, you know, made a time or day uh, where you might make an attempt? Um, and a lot of people will avoid doing that because it th they think it may make them worse or more suicidal, which is just it's absolutely also not an good. unbelievably uncomfortable conversation to have with your own child about have you made a plan? Have you started collecting materials? Do you have a time a day? However, when you talk about this, I remember being desperately suicidal in junior high to the point that I had a plan. I had a time. I had the means. I knew what day. I knew the people I had to say goodbye to first. And the story beyond that is that the, the day I was going to do it, I was going to do it after I babysat because I really loved those kids and I wanted to have one last time with them. And before I went to go babysit, a friend called me and said, you got to watch this TV show on PBS at 1030 called Monty Python's Flying Circus. And I watched it and I cr laughed so hard, I cried. And when I cried, I broke. And it created a lot of relief. It created a, a, a massive, overwhelming release of tension. And I decided to wait another week so I could watch another episode. And for a summer, Monty Python kept me alive and that was long enough to keep going. Now, I just gave a suicide scenario that I personally went through as a child. Is that average? Is that normal? Was there something, was there something in what I said that was like, that's what you need to watch for? I think the, the feelings and the symptoms and the planning and everything that you went through for someone who is at risk for suicidality is very normal. But the also thing to remember, too, is while, while teen suicide deaths are increasing, it's still a relatively rare phenomenon. I mean, right now the rates are about 10 out of every 100,000. So it is a very rare event, but even one is too many. But why, the thoughts and the feelings. Not, 
Real quick, why doesn't it feel rare? It feels like it's happening everywhere into more kids and most kids. And like, like when I hear parents talk about it, is, is it just that we're aware that it's going on or is it happening more? Because it feels like it's happening more. It is. It's on the rise. In fact, between 2009 and 2017, we saw two things. One, we saw about a 25% increase in teens who experienced suicidal ideation. So that just may mean fleeting thoughts or maybe a little bit more than fleeting, but no plans or, or you know, gathering materials for attempts. But we've also seen a 33% increase in completed suicide in teens in, in between 2009 and 2017. 33%. Holy mackerel. Yeah. Now, you, you just talked about the ideation, that that was a fleeting moment. It was a consideration. Does it also, when, when we use the term suicidal ideation, does that also represent, it seems, a, a way a problem could be solved? It's, yes. It be, what happens over time is, you know, the thought of, you know, ending your own life is very, very uncomfortable for most people. And even people that die by suicide or have a lot of these thoughts, at first, it's very, very scary. But over time, like you just mentioned, it can also become kind of a plan or a method of escape. So it can be kind of come comforting, as hard as that may be for people to understand. It's a way out. And over time, as these ideations continue unchecked and get stronger and stronger, that's how people end up um, becoming very serious risk factors and start you know, making a plan like you mentioned, materials, time of day, uh, day of the week, saying goodbye to people. Like There was a significant plan that you had in place there, and that didn't develop over a very short period of time, I would imagine. I, I imagine that developed for you uh, uh, over at least a period of months or even years. A tremendous amount of time. It, it built up for a while. Okay, yeah. let's, let's move in to the school shooting piece. Because as I'm, as I'm looking, with you being on the... Was it a natural transition for you to be working uh, with a, the the Military Suicide Research Consortium and Warrior Resiliency and move towards school shootings, or did you kind of happen upon that that topic that that this this phenomenon that it, that again feels like it's on the rise? School violence and and maybe it is. I certainly it, talking about that whole list just here this year. Um, how did you how did you move into to school shooting and suicide uh, uh, and survivor suicide? suicide? Well, I've been I've been you know I've been working and I've been I've been studying and, and staying very current on suicidality in my current work in the field of addiction because the two are the two go hand in hand. Um, and you know, with the, the the school shootings and the violence and the suicidality and our our, our nation being plagued by addiction, there's a lot of tie in to all of those and. We've recently seen in the last few years the average life expectancy in the United States going down. And that is a very scary phenomenon, considering that our medical research and um, treatment of disease is, is getting better and better. And, you know, the United States is the, is the greatest country in the world for medical research. So while heart disease, cancer, stroke, respiratory illnesses are all on the decline, our life expectancy is going down because of accidents and suicidality. And those are heavily on the rise. And there's just been, there's been a lot of tie-in between, you know, the, these three factors. And for me, for transitioning from kind of, you know, my primary research was on suicidality into the field of addiction, 
it wasn't that big of a leap because they're so closely tied together. And, you know, school shootings and mental health and, and all of those things are kind of wrapped up together. And we see and deal with the survivor guilt, the post-traumatic stress, the addictions that follow. Uh, and it, it's not really one, it's not like really, you know, separate areas anymore. It's, it's, we have to kind of confront all of these areas if we're going to win this fight. And now a word from our sponsors. As a suicide and abuse survivor, Johnny Crowder spent his formative years searching for resources to help him cope with his mental health issues, ranging from OCD and bipolar disorder to schizophrenia. And after nearly a decade of clinical treatment, volunteer peer counseling, and public advocacy, he now relies on the strategies he shares through Cope Notes to live a happier, healthier life. Johnny Crowder is the founder and CEO of Cope Notes, and I met up with him to talk about what he's created. And honestly, parents, I think every teen, every person who suffers from anxiety or depression or any mental health issue should have Cope Notes on their phone. Check this out. How did you come up with Cope Notes? Where did all this come from? It's a classic entrepreneur story of someone looking for something for a decade, realizing it doesn't exist, and then fashioning one out of pure frustration. that the option wasn't available before. Yeah, so how does it work? The way I picture it is that people are getting a text a day or like what's happening? Yeah, so we'll send a user one text a day, random time, you don't know when you'll get it or what it'll say. And these texts are psychology facts or advice or a question that you can respond and journal to. And over time, we're just trying to help you mold your brain into something that works with you instead of against you. Instead of us throwing someone on our back and carrying them, we want to make sure that we're putting them in a position where they can carry themselves. Because independence is the goal, right? When something happens, you don't want to turn to something and say, fix me. You want to go, I know what to do to handle this now. So the the concept of it being cope notes, are you seeing this as a, a healthy coping mechanism? Or is this to replace the, the old bad ones? It's an answer to bad habits compounding on each other over time. So just like we can accidentally turn to the wrong thing over and over again, Cope Notes presents you with a new thing every day. So Cope Notes isn't the resource. We're connecting you with 150 other ways to think about what you're going through. So you can actually buy it for someone else and it starts showing up on their phone? So our gift subscription is one of our most popular options and it, you can personalize it. You can say, you know, from mom, love you. Or you can leave it anonymous and that person will start receiving the text messages right away. What's the feedback been like, Johnny? That's the part that's really been the most encouraging for me, I think. People have made massive decisions in life based on one of our texts. And sometimes it's so clearly from the user's interpretation of the text. It just mentions popcorn and someone checks themselves into rehab for an eating disorder. Is there a Facebook page that people can check into your community? We have a public Facebook page. It's just Cope Notes. It should be pretty easy to find. Is this going around the world? I got international listeners. We're number one in Australia, number three in Canada. Like, are they going to be able to do this? Yes. Believe it or not, even though you live in another country and it's text messages, you would think that it would be really complicated, but we have an international system set up. We're in 75 countries across the globe right now, so odds are wherever you live, we're already serving people in your country. 
That's Johnny Crowder, lead singer of Prison and the founder of Cope Notes. To activate your two free weeks of Cope Notes, go to beyondriskandback.copenotes.com. That's beyondriskandback.copenotes.com. Go get your free two weeks. Okay, let's get back to the program. It seems to me um, that we are now talking about PTSD. I, I, this could be easy compartmentalized in saying school shootings can cause this problem. And that, and that a big part of your study about uh, you know, school shootings, and you did just release your study on, on survivor suicide. Is that correct? No, the, the study that I just released was um, focused on whether or not it is damaging or iatrogenic, meaning makes people worse, on just assessing for suicidality. So uh-huh. we wanted to. So there's again the myth that a lot of people, um, what makes people a lot of people scared about asking about suicide is they not only is it very uncomfortable, like you mentioned, but it also people are are afraid that it's going to make someone more suicidal. So this kind of added to the literature suggesting that it is not only is it not going to make people more suicidal, but it may actually have a benefit. And that is what the research showed. That it's not going to make people more suicidal and it's suggesting a benefit that I just want to repeat what you said, that talking about it. Now, are we talking about clinicians talking about it or are we talking about parents talking about it or anybody just pure, honest conversation? This study specifically was, um, Basically, we had two different groups, and we had we had clinicians administering suicide risk assessment measures. So, specifically with this research, what we showed was, first of all, the control group versus the experimental group was the group of people that had suicide uh, attempts in their past. And in the in the two groups, none of the groups had increases in in suicidality, but the group of people who did have past suicide attempts actually showed benefit from the risk assessment. So in this particular study, it was clinicians delivering a standardized measure. Is um, is the suicide rate among people who have survived a school shooting higher than the average? That, that's a good question. I don't have specific data on that, but I can tell you that people who go through a school shooting or some sort of severe trauma like that are definitely going to be way more at risk for mental health disorders like post-traumatic stress disorder. And post- people with post-traumatic stress disorder do have high rates of suicide. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm Googling uh, school shooting survivor suicide. And I'm, I'm looking at these documents going back at 22 million pages and results, documents going back uh, just on page one all the way to, to, to March. Like, like it's, it's obviously a big story. And I'm curious, is it specific? And, and, I, and again, this, this would tie in with the, with the warrior resiliency and doing the research with the soldiers. Is it because they've been involved in gun violence or is this a PTSD uh, symptom? So with, with suicidality, there, there are different components to it. So in order to get to a point where you're actually going to make a serious attempt, there are, there are a couple factors that have to be in play. And the two, the two pieces that make up the desire for suicide are perceived burdensomeness and thwarted belongingness. So 
someone with suicidal ideation or, you know, someone who has a strong desire for suicide, they will fully believe through severe cognitive distortion that the people in their lives will be better off if they're gone. Now, obviously, in most cases, that is not the case. And everyone who's left behind is not better off. You know, they're, they're changed forever. Um, and a sense of thwarted belongingness is a concept of you feel like you just don't belong anywhere. You're, you're kind of isolated. You don't belong to a group. But those two components are not enough. That's just the desire piece. The third component here that we're talking about and what you're getting at with the trauma and gun violence is the acquired ability for suicide. So that was the major focus of my research um, in grad school and as a postdoc. And this involves, you know, experiencing traumatic life events. So a school shooting, survivor's guilt, war, um, you know, sexual assault, physical assault. There's lots of things that can lead to someone gaining this acquired capability, but not until you have all of those components in place, are you going to be able to make a serious or fatal attempt on your life? How would someone who serves in the military uh, someone who survives a school shooting is is interviewed by the news, has therapeutic intervention. How do they begin to embody the concept of being a burden or that they don't belong, especially because they belong to, and this is really kind of dry, but they belong to a very unique culture um, that sets them apart yet gives them a very... Um, special and I use the word unique tribe clan of other shooters. Why is it that they feel like they're a burden and that they don't belong? Or would those things have to already exist for them to then add the traumatic life event and attempt and potentially be successful at a suicide? You you bring up a lot of good points with that question. So going to the military piece and belongingness, you're absolutely right. Being part of a unit is a brotherhood. And there, you know, arguably, there's not a lot of there's not a lot out there that's more solid, of course, uh, being part of a you know being part of a unit and the belongingness that the the brotherhood of military brings. But imagine if you are in the military and you're part of a unit and you're the outcast of your unit. So not only do, are you not part of your unit, or you're the one who's constantly picked on, or maybe you're the slowest, or you're constantly being ragged at, but now you're not only, not only do you not have the belonging of your unit, but in such a tight unit, you're on the outside. So you, you, you start to say, I don't even belong here where anybody can belong. Exactly. Imagine what kind of impact that would have on somebody. Um, and then, you know, there are strong genetic factors too. Suicidality is very heritable. We know this is not a question anymore, something that we think might be true. There's a very strong genetic predisposition to suicidality. It runs in families. So now you start putting these things together. You have this thwarted belongingness. You have a genetic predisposition. And then you're also exposed to severe threat or trauma you're starting to build a perfect recipe for high-risk suicidality. And then on top of that, the, this, 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 okay. Oh, all right. So now I, now I get this. Now I see this. All right. Let's get into some of the kind of the deeper meat and potatoes for the parents. All right. What, Man, this this is a this is a hard question, and and it, it's it's almost like the chicken and the egg because now you're even bringing up genetic predisposition. But when I gave the parents an article in the 
parent weekend workbook that is that shows all the stages of relapse behaviors. And there are 35 of them. The 35th one being they relapse with the substance, right? Everything, 35 steps identified by clinical psychology that says this is what happens before a relapse. And a doc, it doesn't even include skipping a meal, which now research is saying, oh my God, all of this starts with skipping breakfast. Your brain chemistry goes off. You can't handle the emotional sequencing, you know, and, and so now you could add a, a post to the 35 that there is skipping a meal. Does that exist for creating a suicidal person? Do we know an order? Are there 15 signs that a parent can look for? What are the signs of suicidality? Well, that's a good question. And it's not an easy thing for parents, as you imagine. And a lot of teens, you know, once you get to those teenage years, you're not exactly opening up a lot with your with your parents. And there's a kind of that time of almost separation. But, you know, I think the best thing that parents can do is, you know, try to build that relationship of openness, being able to talk, having your kids being feel comfortable coming to you to speak. But the other, other than that, you're going to want to look for changes in behavior. So as a psychologist, I've been doing this for a long time. Um, I, I can spot changes in behavior in family or friends or patients, almost like a big neon sign blinking above their head. It, it just comes very natural to me and, and I can sense it pretty quickly. But for, for parents, what you want to look for is signs of depression. So of the majority of people that die by suicide, I think I've read as high as 90% have a diagnosable major depressive disorder. And signs of depression in, in teens, you know, you're going to look for prolonged anger, frustration, tearfulness. Um, you know, if they're playing sports or they're normally very involved in sports or groups, if they start to withdraw from that, those can be a sign. Loss of relationships, lack of interest with peers, friends, romantic relationships. Um, one of the ones you can really determine, and, and you might even get your, your teen to open up about, is their sleep habits. So one of the things we found in the military research as well is one of the more predictive um, measures was nightmares and um, sleep disorders. So that might be something you can ask your teen about without, you know, getting them to shut down immediately. You know, how are you sleeping? You know, are you having nightmares? Are these nightmares consistent? Um, other things, changes in appetite or you know, maybe they kind of slow down or they're speaking really slowly or moving really slowly difficulty concentrating, changes in their grades or academic performance. Um, and sometimes they will start to reference or talk a lot about death. Um, and you may also notice self-harm behavior. So that's a pretty long list of things. And there are certainly other, other ones as well. But if you start noticing some significant changes in behavior, try to speak with them about that. See, see what's going on. If it gets worse and worse and then they're not opening up, you know, it's time to get professional help involved. You mentioned the last one and I wrote all those down as you, as you spoke, um, because this is, this is a powerful list. This is, this is something to stick up on a wall of our, of our treatment centers, of our, of our homes on the fridge. If you're feeling any of these, come talk to mom. If you're feeling any of these, you know, call dad. And we're also dealing with adolescents at times who are trying to establish self-concept by separating from the family social system. That's naturally, uh, that's develop, that's, that's natural development for adolescents. However, them separating out from even that, that core primal 
uh, uh, base units while they're feeling isolated um, and and not belonging in the <laughs> in the teen world, which in and of itself is bad enough for a teen to feel like they don't belong even in their own peer mm-hmm. unit. But now they they don't see how they're relevant at home anymore because they're changing so much that if they're distributing the displaying these symptoms, they don't want to go to mom or dad. But I want to touch on the last one you said, self-harm behaviors. And I need to know if this has changed because our facility, does, we do a lot of work with self-harm behaviors. And we got into, uh, we began running Fire Mountain uh, back in 2009, just as it was becoming like prolific, like a lot of conversation about it, a lot of focus on it. And one of the things that was discussed was that self-harm in and of itself is not a suicidal act or a sign of feeling suicidal. But uh, so many people who did commit suicide had been self-harming. Is that still accurate? Is that still what the evidence shows? And can you explain that? Yes. So not all self-harm behavior, as you mentioned, means that they're eventually going to die by suicide, but it also is. And that's a question from parents. Isn't that just practicing suicide? Look, it certainly can be, but it doesn't mean that 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 will be the end all outcome. So suicidal, um, you know, when we were talking about the acquired ability piece for suicidality, this is one of those avenues where you can gain the acquired ability. I mean, the most common form of self-harm that we see is cutting right? Um, We see this a lot in borderline personality disorder. And generally, if you see someone self-injuring or cutting themselves or burning or whatever, the first question that should pop into your mind, is this a case of borderline personality disorder? It won't always be, but a lot of times it will be. Um, But that is one of the avenues towards practice, so to speak, that will give them that acquired ability. Again, think about, you know, purposely cutting yourself with a razor blade on the arm or inner thigh or wherever. That's a terrifying thought, and most people will never do it or couldn't do it. But again, over time, with practice, you become habituated to it, and it becomes almost the opposite reaction or more of an anxiety release. So with time and practice, they become more comfortable with that, which can lead to becoming more comfortable with making an attempt. But not all self-injury is borderline personality disorder or you know, going to end in suicidality. There's another type of disorder that's, that's going to it's gaining traction and a lot of research is showing as non-suicidal self-injury or NSSI. So that may be in the DSM at some point, but it can be something that is phasic. So teens can go through it and then they can stop and something that they move on from. But it certainly is, a, it, regardless of what the category is or the diagnosis, it, it's, it's a big problem. And if, if that is noticed, if you notice your, your teen has you know, cut marks on the inner arm or inner thigh, or you see blood in the sheets or on their clothes, it's time to get professional help. It seems like so many of these, the list that you've given, um, so many of them can just be a signpost to say, go talk to a counselor, go talk to a therapist, go talk to a a coach, a life coach, a, a, a minister, a teacher, a parent. This, you know, whether you've got prolonged anger, you're struggling relationships, your appetite's changing, and you notice that in yourself, you reach out. But that's that's completely opposite of feeling like you don't belong. And 
God forbid you reach out to a parent or a coach or something like that, and you're thwarted. You know, you, you reach out to the coach and maybe of no fault of the own, the coach says, hey, I'm busy today. I'll talk to you tomorrow. But today is when you're feeling it and you feel thwarted that that's thwarted belongingness. Or, you know, I can't talk right now. The other kids are, you know, little, little Johnny's got the flu and older Susie has a, has a oboe recital tonight. So I got to deal with you later. And now you just feel like a burden. And these are, this feels like a, a cul-de-sac that, that things just, the behavior is reinforced because the evidence that these things are true keeps repeating yourself. And because what we focus on expands, all you see is what you already perceive. You know, you want to buy a Jeep and suddenly all you see is the Jeep. So this happens with kids too. This, this sounds like a spin cycle, a cul-de-sac. How do parents get their kids out of this? I think that the thing to remember too is that if, if parents are concerned or they're seeing some of these symptoms and they don't know what to do, one thing that parents can do right away is seek professional help for themselves on how to proceed. Nice. So a lot of times, yeah, family members have, and and a lot of times family members have their own mental health disorders or anxiety or depression and, you know, depression, anxiety, these things run in families too. So if parents are suffering from these things themselves and starting to see similar symptoms in their kids, the best thing they can do is learn as much as possible about these disorders, you know, connect with with understanding peers, get individual counseling for themselves and you know through that strengthening themselves and their own resolve and getting professional help on how to deal with with the teenagers in these situations can be a big support for the parents and then they can learn the best possible ways to attack this is there anything unique to a soldier situation or to a shooting survivor situation that anything that takes them out of the, the three primary things we see in anybody who becomes suicidal, or are they just, it's just the same thing again. And, and all the research is just reaffirming. This is what, this is what leads to suicide. You know, with, with, with these very traumatic, large events, like the school shootings, it's, it's similar in concept, but it's just like a mega dose, right? It happened. It, it was a violent nationally publicized tragedy, you know, personal or you know, close friends were lost in this. And it's almost just like a major jump start. So it's very possible. And, you know, I, I don't know about the specific cases of, of the most recent, you know, from the, from the Parkland, the Parkland shootings, you know, it's also possible that these teens uh, and, and teens from other you know, school shootings like this, you know, maybe they had struggled with mental health disorders or, um, and this was just that event that kind of just pushed them over the edge. Um, but even in these scenarios, you know, school shootings or, or military trauma, um, you know, the, the, the getting to the point where they made an attempt on their lives or, or died by suicide still isn't a fast thing. It develops over time. The burden sentence, the belongingness, the acquired ability piece, the thoughts about suicide, planning for it. It's not an impulsive act. And that's another big myth around suicidality. People just don't up and decide one day they're going to die by suicide. It's, it's, it's a long drawn out process um, filled with, you know, distorted thinking, planning, habituation, 
and finally, you know, um, a serious attempt. You had a personal connection to the Parkland shootings. I did, yes. Um, yeah, so I, I grew up in Coral Springs, Florida, which is b- right on the border with Parkland. Um, and Stoneman Douglas High School was about a mile down the road from where I lived. I, I went to Coral Springs High and, um, you know, I had friends at Stoneman Douglas in high school and I was at that school many times, you know, playing soccer against Stoneman Douglas. We were big rivals, as you can imagine. And when this happened, um, it floored me. And I immediately reached out to um, a man named Les Gordon, who is a therapist and actually was one of the bigger inspirations for me to get into this field in the first place. And he has three daughters that I'm very close with and lifelong friends. And um, one of his daughters is actually uh, Katie Gordon. She's a prof- she was a professor now in, in um, working in mental health in North Dakota. And I, I reached out to Les. I reached out to the principal of the school. And uh, even now, just talking about it, it's very hard to keep my composure. Um, it, it really hit me hard. And I wanted to help. I wanted to do anything I could. And um, just recently, um, Les had reached out to me about sponsoring um, an event that they're doing on August 10th in, in South Florida for the, the therapists that have been treating the survivors and the family members because they're experiencing vicarious traumatization from this and they're also struggling. So Les and his team and, and his group, what they did was they, they got with his, a, a bunch of, I think 50 to 100 therapists, maybe more, uh, in the area who all opened up pro bono spots on their caseloads for anyone who needed help, survivors, family members, anyone affected by the Parkland shooting. And they're heroes. And the, the, the fact that they reached out to me and I can do anything to help that at all is, is one of the greatest honors of my career. You brought up a, a subject just a second ago that, that really kind of hammered me backwards. And certainly something that I've, I've heard of, but I've not heard the term for it. But vicarious trauma, uh, is that a thing? Is, I mean, obviously it's a thing. You're, you're, you've got a, you know, a team of therapists who are opening up spots for other therapists. And, and the fact that it's pro bono work, that's phenomenal. And, and hats off to just the give back of mental health. I feel like every single one of us are on this proverbial 12th step in our lives, just taking the message of hope to people who still suffer. Uh, what is vicarious trauma? Can parents suffer it because their kids are going through stuff or are parents just suffering their own version of trauma? Like, and how bad is it? it you know, I can tell you from my own experience. So I, I treated trauma for, for quite a while. And, and if, you're, if you're delivering the treatment for trauma or post-traumatic stress the correct way, um, using the frontline treatments for trauma, you're living and reliving the experience that your patient went through. And um, through a treatment called cognitive processing therapy, one of the, the big components of that treatment is that the patient is writing about the trauma. They're reprocessing it. They're writing about what happened. They're writing about it from a sensory perspective. And part of the homework, once you build up their confidence, is for them to read this aloud in session. So, and it's not just once or twice, but it's session after session after session. So as the therapist, you're, you're, you're reliving this with them again and again and again. Now imagine having a large caseload of people who suffer from trauma, or maybe you're also running trauma groups 
And that becomes very hard on the therapist. Um, I did this kind of work and I can tell you there were days where I finished a trauma group. I went back to my office to write up my notes and I found myself just staring at my computer for like a half an hour and almost snap out of it. Like, oh my God, what was I doing for the last 30 minutes? Um, and it's, it's incredibly difficult work. And, and a lot of times the, the people who do this great work, again, the heroes of our world, they, they need help too, because they, they can get to a point where this trauma is heavily affecting their own lives and, and, and they need support and, and, and help to get through that as well. So my hats are off to the people who do this work every day. We got a great podcaster on Mental Health News Radio Network named Stephen Kavalkovich, who his podcast is actually called Rescue the Rescuer. And yeah. uh, he, was a, he, he was a paramedic during 9-11. And his own trauma, traumatic experience led him to um, you know, severe addiction and, uh, and et cetera, and his healing process. It's a great podcast. Okay, let's, let's bring in some, some final piece. I love the when with and that's that's the what do we do question um and and you brought up I think which is one of the most potent and powerful things if you think your kid is is going through some of this stuff as a parent you go get help you go get therapy yeah. don't just set it on your kid you go what else what else do we do How, what do we do about this about suicide about about surviving a, a traumatic event what do we do and that's a, that is the tallest order question I think I could ask. You know, I think based on my experience and, you know, and, and working in addiction for these last seven years, I, I've done um, a lot of family weekends. So um, for five and a half years, once a month, I did a Saturday, Sunday family weekend for parents and family members of people who are suffering from addiction. But the people that are suffering from addiction often are also suffering from severe mental health disorder and suicidality. So the, the family members were always asking these exact questions. You know, I could pr I've done it so many times that I knew exactly what they were going to ask me. And I changed the program over time to answer these questions. And one of the hardest things for family members to shift focus on a lot of times within addiction or mental health is self-care. And they think that they need to, you know, be, it's all about the, the one child or the one family member, and they need to do everything they can to fix the problem. But a lot of times that they neglect themselves completely or other members of their family. So I think my one piece of advice would be take care, good care of yourself. If you want to be a, a potent caregiver in your family system, you cannot do that unless you take good care of yourself first. It's like that old uh, example being on an airplane. Everyone who's been on a plane knows that you put the oxygen mask on yourself first before you help others. Because if you don't get the oxygen flowing to you, you're going to pass out and you're not going to be able to help anybody. So I think it's really critical that parents and family members realize the importance of taking care of yourself, good self-care. If you need help, if you need to seek professional help, don't wait. Just get out there and do it. And then once you've got to that point, then you start to ask and develop a plan for how you're going to help your loved one. You know, Doc, I'm sitting here feeling, you know, vindicated and justified and rationalized. My ego is very, very satiated right now because the tagline of the show is take care of yourself first, take care of your adult relationship second, take care of your children third, because in that way we do our best work with our kids. I teach our parents weekend as well. And the entire experience 
everything we teach about basic brain chemistry, everything we teach about the five human needs, it cost and payoff in choices, everything leads back because a parent says, well, then, okay, now that I know that there are no bad choices, there's only risky choices and good choices, what do I do? And I run over to the poster on the wall that says, what does taking care of yourself look like? It is so, so thank you for saying it so clearly because if your kid is going through signs of depression, if your kid has expressed suicidality or suicidal ideation, if your kid has tried to commit suicide, your self-care goes to crap. And you don't, yes. you don't eat, you don't think straight, you don't, your work is suffering, your relationship suffers, your finances suffer, and the stress of those things suffering causes stress in your relationship, which causes more stress. The kid who is already depressed and suicide is feeding on that. It is the most vicious cycle. But then trying to explain to a, to a parent, a mother or a father, I know your kid is, is suicidal. You need to go swimming. You need to go to a yoga class. You need to go see a therapist. You need to take time for yourself. It feels like the absolute most selfish thing you could possibly do. Yeah, and that is exactly how it feels for parents. But again, like we've been talking about with suicidality and distorted thinking, that's all that is. It's distorted thinking. Self-care is just as important, if not more important, because you can't be a good caregiver unless you take care of you. You know, the other thing I was thinking about when you were talking about that is I have, I have little kids. I have a seven-year-old boy and a four-year-old girl, and it's my greatest nightmare that they end up growing up, you know, suffering from addiction. I, I work with that every single day. I'm terrified of that. Or, you know, grow up with mental health disorders or problems. And what, what I try to do with my own kids, and I, I've, I've taken it to a step where you see like on LinkedIn or Facebook all the time, there's like little pictures of like, you know, how to take care of the mental health of your children. And I print those and I frame them and I keep them, I put them on my walls, like my kitchen. I have them all around my house just as a reminder, you know, what do I need to do to foster strong mental health in my children? And I practice this stuff every day because I want to do everything I can to set them up for success in life. But I know from a fact that for a fact that I'm not going to be able to control that. I can do my best to raise them right, give them all the love and care and support that I can. But I also show them, and my wife and I do this as well, we show them daily the importance of self-care. We don't tell them to do it. We don't shove it down their throats. We just do it and they see it. We eat healthy. We exercise regularly. We have very uh, strong you know, bed and wake time routines. And my kids are a part of this routine and they'll come up. We have a gym in the house and they'll come in there and my my four-year-old will start to try to pick up a you know a three-pound weight, and my and my son will ask questions about you know how how to how to bench press, and I don't force them to exercise or do any of that stuff. We just show them, and li- kind of leading by that example is kind of the way that we're tackling it. You know, and I hope that works, and I, I hope that they grow up happy and healthy. But I know deep down inside that I only think you can control so much, and th- and that's how we kind of focus on it. Dr. Bender, I need you to shameless me, shamelessly promote any books you have, re- research that people can get their hands on, and where you're currently uh, working as a doctor in the treatment yes. center. So please Absolutely. take some time for people to know how to find you. Yeah, so um, if you, if you want to read about my research, um, you, can, you can find a lot of my uh, published articles on Google Scholar. If you just uh, type in my name, Theodore W. Bender. 
Um, uh, my most recent publication um, just came out. It's, it's actually in press right now. Um, it's, uh, it's on the topic of asking about suicidality. It's in neurology, psychiatry, and brain research. Um, you can find me on, on LinkedIn as well. Um, I have a, a pretty big following on LinkedIn, and I, I post articles on there, and I do some original writing on there as well. Um, I'm currently the CEO of the Treehouse, which is the largest uh, substance use disorder treatment facility in the state of Texas. Um, we have a 180 bed unit, um, and um, we're doing a lot of great work out here. Uh, I'm, I just recently came out to, to Kaufman County, Texas, to run this facility, and in just a few short months, we've done uh, a tremendous amount of public outreach. Um, we've, we've been working with the local newspapers to get educated out to the public. And most recently, we put together uh, a charity golf tournament, which raised enough money through through proceeds and donations to purchase 700 doses of the opioid antidote Narcan. And um, we're going to, we're not going to stop until every first line responder in the entire county is armed with this life-saving antidote. That's our mission out here. Um, we are, we're not just treating patients at the treehouse. We're, we're taking our responsibility to help our county and our our neighbors um, to get through this this very difficult time for all. You of said us. the treehouse has 180 beds. What are what are the age group? Uh, what's the age group you guys work with? It's adults only, so so 18 and up. Um, it's, we don't do we don't we don't treat adolescents, um, right. but anyone anyone from 18 and up, uh, male and female. Okay, so hey, Doctor Bender, I would love to. Um, come on out. I'm going to be back in Texas uh, probably around October. I'd love to come out, visit personally, say hi, and perhaps do a show face to face. You're you're good. This is good stuff. Is this is this something we could set up? Absolutely, Aaron. I'd love to have you out here. This campus is breathtaking. It's 65 acres. We have six pole zip line. We have horses. We do equine assisted therapy. I mean, I've never had the resources or amenities for a treatment center that I do now, and I'd love to have you out here. I'd be. I'd love to. I'd love to come see it. All right, Doc. Um, I, I thank you for the LinkedIn. Uh, stay on the line while I sign people off, and then I'll be back with you in a second, and uh, we'll okay. wrap it up. All right. Sounds good. All right, folks. I. I feel like there is a a, a point where the things that are reiterated every show. If, if you can find that golden thread of mental health, of, of dependency issues that's taking place in all of these shows, it's, it's going to save a life. In all the years of interviewing the experts and talking to the, these, these big brains, these men and women whose daily work it is to get in the trenches with mental health issues and dependency issues, to talk to them and have them give you the lists of what it is you can do to change the family life so that the experience uh, can shift, that your, your children can be safe. Find the golden thread. And I'll, I'll tell you what it is. I know what it is. I'll tell you what it is. It's taking care of yourself. You know that. You know this is all leading towards the mantra. You take care of yourself first. You take care of your adult relationship second, and you take care of your children third, because that's how we do our best work is when we are taken care of, when our support systems are in play, when our relationships are working. These, those are our adult relationships. 
We always use the, the, the put on your own oxygen mask first, but I want to give you another one. When I was in EMT school, they said, never run to the accident. You're, you're, you get out of the ambulance and you're, you're staring at a car accident that has taken place and you, and this happened to me once. I saw a Jeep that had flipped over and rolled into a field. All the windows are shattered. The, the, the airbags have been deployed and, and I see smoke and I pull over and I hear a voice, help me. And that smoke that I saw freaked me out. And so I ran towards the accident, not seeing a barbed wire fence that had partially collapsed and was right at thigh height. And I hit that thing at a dead run and it grabbed my pants and my skin and flipped me over onto my back, knocking all the air out of me. I got up now. I can't breathe and I'm covered in my own blood. And I'm supposed to help? That is a violation of every paramedic protocol. I can't breathe. I'm covered in blood. I get there. You want to know what the smoke was? It was the smoke from the airbag. And I could barely help. And I made mistakes after that. Take care of yourself first. I want to thank... Mental Health News Radio Network for all the love and support. Kristen Walker, our boss goddess. Check out her show, Mental Health News Radio. I want to thank uh, my daughter, Maya, who is my marketing guru, and my son, Dylan, who is mixing the shows and adding in all the, all the music. And I want to thank uh, Dr. Theodore W. Bender. Check him out on Google Scholar. Check him out on LinkedIn. Go read some of his articles. Uh, this guy... This guy's got it. I'm going to be in touch with him. Folks, thank you for making Beyond Risk and Back a number one parenting podcast. And please continue to listen, like, subscribe, and share. And we will talk again soon. If you have seen Beyond Risk and Back on any of the five major social media sites, you can thank Your Cause Consulting. Your Cause Consulting specializes in marketing companies that have something going on bigger than just running their business. They have a cause. If you'd like to contact Your Cause Consulting, go to yourcauseconsulting at gmail.com. All the sound and the music was engineered and created by Deepin Productions. To reach Deepin Productions, go to deepinproductions at gmail.com.